Remembering uh, at the beginning of the sittings, if you find it helpful to uh, let your attention drop into the loving-kindness. And just, this is a way to soften the heart, to be with what is. May I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful with whatever's happening. May I love myself completely. Remembering that mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. Letting the attention settle within your body and posture. Receiving the life of your body. And then receiving the silence in this room with a very open, wide field of attention. getting out of the way and just noticing any sounds or the silence coming and going without us having to do anything about it, but notice it. Knowing. Silence. And receiving the movement of the breath, its birth, its life, and its death.
<coughs> notice the impermanence of the movement of the breath. Because as we move on to the instruction around thoughts or emotions, it's helpful to have that sense or understanding that things are coming and going by themselves. Just like clouds passing through the sky of mind. So again, seeing if you can receive the movement of the breath, connect with it. Notice it pass away. the appearance of emotion, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, remembering that whatever appears has a life cycle. And it's usually when we think an emotion is permanent that we suffer. And it's helpful to have really investigative attention with emotion. What is this emotion free from any past ideas about it? And if there's no emotion happening now, it's fine. You don't have to conjure up any. Just getting that sense that it's helpful to understand Sometimes emotion appears without any content of thinking. Sometimes it's just some body sensations. Sometimes it's just a whisper of a thought. Often emotion is tricky to attend to because it's a mix of a memory, some body sensations, some thoughts. And it usually is helpful to be able to note something like fear or happiness, gratitude, loneliness, Empathetic joy, anger. There's such a range, sadness or grief, compassion, loving kindness. Enthusiasm, elation despair. And of course we know this, but it's helpful to be reminded that when we get identified with thinking about the emotion, that we're not experiencing it. We bypass it. So it's usually when we really receive the emotion, connect with it, like the movement of the breath or a sound, that it has its own life, that we get out of the way, and it will appear, live, and disappear without us having to do anything with it. But notice it.
Sometimes it's helpful to move away from an emotion if we're getting really lost in it. It's okay to just shift back to sound or the movement of the breath. If we can't be mindful of it, that's skillful means. It's not failing. Other times, if it feels like the, intent, the emotion is <clears throat> somewhat intense, it helps to really keep up a relationship with something neutral, like the breath or sound, just to give us perspective that it is impermanent, that it will pass away. And usually it's helpful to have the attention grounded with any physical sensations that are happening corresponding with the appearance of the emotion. So we can learn to relate to pleasant unpleasant or neutral emotions, like we would the sound of the car going by right now, or the sound of my voice, or the breath. Just be careful of not getting caught up are identified with the content of the thinking. And enjoy it if there's no storms coming through. Just settle back and do the best you can to be here, whatever is appearing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Did you hear the question? No. Um, I'm going to try to paraphrase it. Um, the question is around knowing when it's, um, say, aversion arises and you've been pretty with the, you know, pretty much with the breath and then a th- the thought appears and you didn't notice it, but you see that it's an aversive thought and um, how do you know at some point <laughs> if the aversion continues, right? If it continues, whether uh, it's better to go back to the breath or to stay with the aversion, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, Most of the time, which, which is interesting, if, it, if it's not clear, you know, off, I mean, the, the, it's usually sort of clear what, what's helpful or it isn't. And if it isn't, usually it's going to take a little longer to kind of navigate through it. So that's one thing I just want to say, that sometimes, you know, if it's clear, it's clear, right? <laughs> and that's usually not an issue. But when it, when it, when it does feel like... Um, the aversion is sticking around. Um, I do think that often at the bottom of our difficulty with working with, say, aversion or, or attachment is, is some sort of idea that it hasn't gone away, but sometimes that's invisible. You know, so, so really um, equanimity is unconditional acceptance. 
Um, and if mindfulness and equanimity are there, um, usually it is a little bit clearer what to do, but just to paint that picture, that, that when there's complete acceptance, um, there's a way in which we allow the aversion to move through. And it doesn't matter to us that it lasts 15 minutes or 2 minutes or, or 20 minutes. Sometime. Or what can often happen is that we're really with it, which is what I would guess you, you know, you're describing a situation where we might be with it, we might be allowing the aversion, and then it might be that either the energy goes down a bit or the equanimity goes down a bit, and then, and then the skillful means sometimes is to move away from it or, or to see if you can keep up a relationship with something neutral and go back and forth. And so I would say try, you know, if there is a little bit of confusion about what to do, I would say the most important thing to do is to move to something neutral, like an anchor that works for you, like the breath or sound, something that's neutral, and see if it's helping bring an, enough spaciousness of attention to let, it, to let it be okay and to move through. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, it's great to be aware of that. Right, if you can. Yeah, if you can, not, if you see that you're going back to an anchor out of aversion and you're not noticing it, yeah, if you can be with the aversion, great. Yeah. Aversion is very unpleasant. You know, this is what we miss, that, that, that aversion itself um, is so unpleasant that it's often difficult to see that that's making space for that is is hard. When when aversion is extreme, we feel the most separate from things, and that's why it's so painful. And attachment is similar. It's like when we feel attachment, we actually are creating a sense of duality. It's so painful. Both of them are so painful because we feel the most separate. And anything we can do to 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 not bypass that experience but go through it, usually it requires some ability to be aware of how unpleasant it is and that you can still let it through. Like, a, like practice with sound that's unpleasant. The more you can allow sound that's unpleasant to pass through, then we stand a chance to actually allow the unpleasant and pleasant. And then if, if, you, can't, if you can't stay with that, it's more to just know that making the choice to go to something neutral or even pleasant as, as a way to soften is okay. And it, it doesn't have to be so black and white and that my experience most of the time is that I'm doing with aversion a bit of all of it. It's like I might step back to something neutral, go back into it, go to the body, be aware of knowing, sometimes just being aware of knowing the aversion creates the most space. You kind of settle back into an open, open awareness and the, the aversion will feel smaller than that open awareness. There's a bigger space for it. Mm-hmm. That's okay, good. I'll, yeah. Right. Non-identification. You know, some people find it easier as an entry point to work with things with non-identification, and often some people find the entry point to be acceptance. So just to know that, that um, often one or the other of those are easy for us to access. So if that's true, the more you get to know your own practice, I think the more you can see that one or the other of those is the way to start to work with things. You know, so, it, um, for example, if acceptance is easier for you, then you would move toward that. And then as that acceptance sort of started to infuse your experience, then you would start to work with seeing if you could not take it so personally, not identify it as you or I or mine. You know, so for some people, for example, hearing that experience doesn't refer back to a separate I or me or mine, it, it's natural. It's like there's a, it, there's a feeling of, oh yeah, yeah, and, and it's like there's an ease with it. 
then that would be the place to go for that type of person with, with an experience that is, is not easy to be with. So, so I would just recommend you to kind of see that about yourself, that if you are the accepting types, don't try to push toward non-identification, but sort of let that acceptance seep in, and then see if you can get a sense, especially with the experience of sound, Usually we don't take sound uh, personally unless our stomach's gurgling in the hall, right? I mean, if our you know if we cough or if you know if our breath is, seems loud, you know, there's there's sometime an experience where we'll think our breath is the loudest sound in the universe, you know, and it's it's just amazing. But generally speaking, you know, if you have a sense of a car going by outside on Pleasant Street when you're sitting here you can get a sense of a, an awareness that's so big that allows that to move through, and it's, we're not taking it personally. That's non-identification. They can come to... Right. I would just be careful of it being a checklist and that you think all four have to be present. Um, a peak experience would when they would be when they are all four present, but it is a moment of a real deep moment of mindfulness would include all of those. And I would say that if you've really felt that acceptance is there and interest, and you still feel off in some way, I would say the offness would be the non-identification. Yeah, and you can experiment with learning how to bring that in for sure. This is practice. We just practice and practice and practice, you know, you know. How we would do that with non I just described it with sound. Say you're having rage and, or anger or, you know, whatever, loneliness. Usually we have some emotion that we are conditioned to deeply resist. It's where we deeply resist that the trouble is there. So, of course acceptance, acceptance, but if, you, if you're feeling like it's still my loneliness or my knee pain, or, you know, that's when it's, when it's my thought or my aversion or whatever, it does help to kind of get that perspective of sound, something outside of your body, and start to, to, start to learn that relationship of that it's not me or mine or I. And then see if you can bring that type of relationship back to the experience that feels so tight, tightly identified with. The other key here is that it's usually when we're identifying a th- with a thought as me or I or mine that, that um, the identification is there. So we might not be so aware that we're thinking it's my knee pain or my neck pain or my anger, right? But there's usually some thought that triggers that. Technically, if there's enough mindfulness, then you would just let the attention do what it does. You wouldn't pick and choose. If you're going with what is predominant, you know, it could be that the attention is actually moving from the body, you know, in the knee up to the up to the chest. There's a, a, a physical sensation in the chest, and then maybe there's an, a, a mental state, and you know, a, a thought process, emotion. It might get called back to the knee. If it's that much happening, I would, I would usually recommend, again, anchoring a bit with the breath, just to give you a perspective of neutrality within that. Um, the anchor is meant to help give us a perspective of neutrality. That's one of the purposes of it. But if you can, you know, Vipassana is going with what's predominant moment by moment. That's, that's the instruction. And when we need to anchor, you know, 
concentration or anchoring is the tool we use to stabilize the mind, rest the mind, so that we have enough um, balance to be with the flow of change. So go with it to the point where you can and then anchor. Go with it to the point you can anchor with it. Technically, you can't be with two things at once in one moment, but you, it, you can certainly flicker back and forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oops. Okay. Great. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you figured that out. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's a good example of I will do my best to to try to speak louder. I'm used to this mic, but sometimes, depending on who's speaking, you know, I I will work harder at speaking louder. So thank you. And I think that that's um, something I'd like to talk about in a talk sometime. But the how to work with anger is so interesting. You know, whether to believe the thought or not, and when to take action or not, and um, how, you know, just what is it? What is it that's getting triggered? That's out of perspective, yeah. And so you just dealt with it very well. I mean, you worked with it, and that something was. I mean, if we're enraged um, about something as a yogi, um, often it's helpful to maybe consider that we're getting triggered. You know, in here, or you know, because you know, we do, we do usually get. Um, triggered on a retreat, and that that that's partly how we learn to work with anger, and we often feel it. You know, somebody can walk in late into the hall, and we can want to murder them. You know, no, really, like it's just like we can we can there can be things that people do in the lunchroom or just anything. They might you know have the wrong pair of shoes, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. You start to see that it's really. Um, you know, this is a longer thing, and we'll talk about it over and over, but we tend to think that the unpleasant um, pain is outside of us. And we, we get all caught up in whatever's happening outside, but, but this practice, which is difficult, is partly learning how to bring our attention back inside and realize that the aversion is our problem, meaning that, you know, we need to work with it really deeply in terms of... Um, the source of the suffering in this world. And when you look at the wars on the planet over belief systems, I mean, just over a belief system, if you took everybody in this room and you took a poll of our belief systems, you could get a lot of anger at just the difference. You know, and I mean, we, people kill. We actually, people kill each other out of aversion. You know, so, so really, yeah, it's like this really important, what we're doing in this hall, we often forget, and out walking is getting at the roots of war within us, you know, and it, it's just like, it, it is really difficult. It's difficult to be able to say, I'm going to sit here and work with this anger, even though it seems like she should talk louder, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, there is that, that and I, again, I, it's good to let me know. And it's important to be able to um, work with the aversion. It's great. And it's time to stop. Mm. Have a good day of practice in the sun. (laughs) You think something's there. Like in this, say more. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, good, good. That's fine. Stay with what you really notice. And so you feel that, that's not uncommon to feel a sensation and have an intuitive sense or a thought maybe there's sorrow or some emotion behind it. But you don't really, you're not really aware of the emotion. So stay with the bare experience. 
that, okay, sensation. It's like this. I wonder if there's sorrow or what? Thinking. So include that thinking. Ah, thinking. Wondering. Come back to this sensation and then just explore it. Oh, but where's the sorrow? Looking, you know. Come back to the sensation. And if there's an emotion associated, suddenly, you know, oh, sorrow. Like when you said it, you felt it in your gut, you knew it was sorrow then. So thinking about isn't the same as being aware of an emotion or looking for. So it's more for you, I think, trusting what you're really feeling. Don't look too hard, because looking too hard gets in the way. Plus, we have some idea of what we're looking for, which is usually wrong. So that gets in the way of noticing what's really happening. It is true that technically emotions, mental states are mental. It's really the third foundation of mindfulness. You know, citta, state of mind, both awareness and the states of mind. And the way the Buddha described it was just knowing the mind with desire, knowing the mind when there's no desire. And noticing the, notice when the mind has concentration, noticing when it doesn't. So yes, emotions, mental states are mental, but that's sometimes for some people, it's so vague and nebulous, it's really hard to notice in the physical, it's what we notice more. For some people, it's kind of, you'd know sorrow, but you couldn't find anything in your body that you could call sorrow, and that's also fine. So it's different for different people, different for the same person at different times. So stay, stay simple. Noticing what you're really noticing. Notice when you're wondering, but come back to what's actually happening and let it, let it flower by itself. I don't know if that helped at all. But you just said you could identify sorrow. See, that's an idea. That's an idea. It may be a true idea, but until you see the emotion, you don't know if that's true. You see what I mean? And so we really get caught in our ideas, especially this one, it's a very common one, of particular difficult sensations are a block, and they're an emotional block, and we want that emotion because, by God, we want that sensation to move. You know? There's an emotion there. It's aversion. and so it's really exploring it it can be very subtle aversion can be very subtle so really trying to get very very simple but very direct with what's actually happening and our assumptions and expectations the assumption could even be true but we don't know And so that's what mindfulness, bare attention, is being so radically free from concept that we bring our attention just in. It's like, this thing again, 17 years of practice, and I'm with this sensation again? Ah, okay. Dislike, expectation, thinking. Sensation feels like this. It's the first time in this life, this mind moment, experience this sensation. It's not the same sensation from last 17 years. It's not the same one for the next 17 years. There's only this moment. So it's really practicing that radical quality of mindfulness. And in that, if there is some emotion locked in there, at some point it'll come out, or the sensation will go away, and you'll never find out anything about it. (laughs) That's also possible. (laughs) Just so you know, there's not always a great story in there. Sometimes there is. But it's really letting go of that wanting enough to just land in what's happening, not to get to something, just to be here. That's really, and it's hard. It's hard. We want some meaning. You know, it's hard. Oh, good luck. (laughs) Okay, last, last one. Yeah. Grief and sorrow, are they 
a kind of aversion or desire and how to work with them. Technically, grief and sorrow are considered type of aversion. It's like a pulling back from experience, how aversion is. When you ask for a guidance to work with them other than how to be with them is pure emotion, what, what are you looking for? What seems to be the difficulty? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Stories and stuff, uh-huh. Which sounds fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, but it's not grief and sorrow. Grief is a really strong, can be very long-lasting. I mean, it comes and goes. It's long-lasting but not steady state, and it's important to notice that. But yes, grief is, is a very powerful emotion at times, usually, but not always, associated with strong storylines. And so working with it in the meditation is very much, as you said, feeling it, feeling the physical sensations, Noticing the storylines, past, future, heaviness, oh, my life, forever, you know. Noticing, oh, that's a story. Not a judgment, just noticing. Come back to the physical experience, which is usually heavy and very unpleasant, and one doesn't really want to be there. So the mind bounces into the story, which is actually what keeps the emotion going, but, you know, thinks it's getting away. Back and forth. When it's too much, and too much doesn't just mean we don't like it, but there's times with really strong emotions, and grief is one that it just sucks the attention down, that you're really as if drowning. Not just when it's first overwhelming, but really you're just spinning, and it seems like it's not mindful, but you just can't, you can't kind of be mindful of anything else. And then it might be helpful, skillful means to turn your attention elsewhere for a while. So that could be going outside and being with seeing and hearing and smelling. It could be just moving from your body in this story to hearing if you're in a sitting or leaving the storyline completely, coming just to the breath, if you can do that, or just to the whole body. How long it takes, yeah, that's out of our control. It's really the same as what we were just talking about, you know. We have this agenda now. I've seen it. It's over, you know. But I find grief it eventually moves past our particular grief to the grief of the world, and from there it can move into compassion, you know, the connection with all beings, through sorrow, through grief. But for that, it really requires an opening into our own grief with great compassion. And that's that, that moment of just surrender to it, with metta, you know, with compassion, just touching it with a caring attention, not to get rid of this damn thing, but just to be with it. And it, you know, it comes and goes. It's not steady state. It takes great trust in the Dhamma, you know, to be with these things. And You'll have plenty of moments of that trust and then moments when the energy's not there and you need skillful means to find a way to balance awareness in another way. Or patience. Okay, thank you. Have a lovely day. Now it stopped again. I did nothing. Nothing. (laughs) The most basic meditation instruction is to sit and know you're sitting. Being open and receptive to whatever you may feel in the awareness of body posture. Not not struggling or straining. You could simply make the note sitting. Sit and know you're sitting. And the whole Dharma is revealed.
abiding in that metta feeling of openness, acceptance, non-reactivity, connectedness. In that space of openness, you can become aware of the natural rhythm of the breath. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Be with each breath just as it presents itself. Long or short, rough or smooth, calm or agitated. It's not a breathing exercise, it's a training in awareness. Settle into the feeling of each breath rather than the watching of it. Feeling the sensations of the air at the nostrils, feeling the movement in the chest or abdomen. Abide in that meta quality in relationship to the breath as well. There's no need to struggle at all. Any old breath will do. Just feeling it as it comes and goes. opening to the different sensations you might feel in the body, particularly when they call the attention away from the breath. Feel the sensation and be aware of what happens to it. Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it stay the same? Does it shift position? Simply be aware of its behavior. And then again return to your primary object, whether it's the breath or the sitting and touching.
you can rest in the simple knowing of what it is that's arising moment to moment. Knowing each breath, knowing sensation, knowing sound. And train the mind in the awareness of the mind, of different mental objects. Might be different emotions, the particular hindrances, desire or aversion, sleepiness, agitation, doubt, fear. Notice the pleasant emotions of calm, of peace, of joy, interest. They too are arising mental states. Simply be aware of them, know them. You might note them as a skillful means. And come back to the body, come back to the breath as your anchor. Give some particular attention as well to the arising of thought in the mind. Thoughts or images, words or pictures. They're very slippery. They slide in and carry us away, usually before we're quite aware that they've come. As soon as you're aware that there's a thought or a picture, make a soft note of acknowledgement, thinking, seeing. And notice what happens to that thought or picture in the moment of awareness. Does it continue? Does it disappear? If there are repetitive patterns of thoughts, you might give a specific note, family tape, work tape, relationship tape. Keep in mind, as Manindraji used to say, that the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. We want to see each phenomena for what it is, not get lost in our conceptual proliferation. You can abide in the same meta-feeling towards thoughts and images as well, so there's not a struggle, there's not a fight. It's simply to be aware. If things get too confusing, you're not sure what to be with, feel like you're losing some balance, simply come back to the body, come back to the breath, sit and know you're sitting.
The question was <coughs> that when she sits in the room and the clothes dryer is on, uh, both the sound and the vibration, the mind seems to glom on it, and it's very hard to put it into the background. I would keep it in the foreground. Basically, it's waiting until the end of the cycle. (laughs) That that might be the great enlightenment. (laughs) Uh, One of the hardest lessons to learn in practice, and we get many tests in this, and we flunk most of them, is that from the perspective of the practice, it really doesn't matter what the object is. Because we're not practicing for any particular experience. What we're practicing is the mind that's not clinging. The mind cannot cling to anything. You know, in one of my favorite lines, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. And even though it's so simple, and you know, we know this in terms of our Dharma understanding, the mind is so keyed to the realm of experience and what we want and what we don't want, and this should be better and this should not. That's why I think Steve's emphasis, you know, on resting simply in the knowing of whatever is arising, the nature of the knowing is the same, whether it's the vibration of the dryer or it's the feeling of the breath, or a sound, or the movement in the walking. It's the same nature of awareness that is knowing it all. The suffering is when we cling, in one way or another, clinging through aversion or clinging through grasping, and the freedom is in the not clinging. So it doesn't really matter, you know, if if that's what the experience is. Fine, but you may need to go through not may need, undoubtedly will need, (laughs) to go through a process where the mind finally does let go of thinking experience should be one way or another. I mean, you've heard, most of you have been here before, you know, the many stories we tell about the endless varieties of loud and disturbing noises in practice in Asia. You know, we're just like all day, you know. And just going through all the reactions and the wanting it to be different and the aversion and the aversion to the aversion and all of it until finally the mind just surrenders. And then it's just sound or it's just vibration. So Another favorite Goldsteinism. <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> it's always a flow of objects. So the continuity is there regardless. What it is that's arising really doesn't matter. Remember, we're practicing the mind that is not clinging. We're practicing that mirror-like awareness that's simply knowing this, this, this. And what it knows can be anything. So just keep in mind as best you can where the freedom lies. The freedom is not in the object. It's in how we're relating. But... What's so interesting is that your experience is all of our experience. I mean, I'm sure that resonated with, with everybody. This is what we all go through, you know, in finally learning 
that it's about non-grasping. I'm going to talk more tonight about that as well. Um, you know, insight happens on many levels, and concentration takes many forms. You need some concentration in a moment to actually be steady and aware of what's happening. If you're distracted, there's not going to be insight. Because the opposite of the opposite of one-pointedness is distractedness. When we're distracted, we're lost. We don't know what's going on. So then it's a question of uh, the steadiness of the concentration, the duration of the, of the undistractedness. But in any moment of undistractedness, the insight reveals itself because we're undistracted, because we actually are seeing things for what they are. Uh, so it's both. You know, it's both what's possible in a moment and also what's possible as it gets stabilized. But I'll, I'll going to be talking more about it. In fact, I'm going to be giving the same talk that Steve gave. <laughs> <laughs> Upandita once gave when one of his visits here a long retreat you know it was a two or three month retreat I don't know how many talks he gave on the syllable pa in satipatthana he may have gave, I don't remember exactly but it might have been ten talks on pa so I think we're going to try to <laughs> match the record Well, the question was about whether the Buddha said anything particular about which sitting position best supports practice. I mean, in the sutta, uh, he does say, you know, sit down, cross-legged, keep your back erect, bring mindfulness in front of you, and proceed. Of course, that was in a culture and as it still is in Asia, in many places where people grow up sitting cross-legged, uh, so they kind of have a little advantage that way. <laughs> I think mostly uh, the idea is to have the back straight so that the breathing can be as effortless and relaxed as possible, you know, where the body can be erect but not stiff. I've set for a variety of reasons, many times, many hours in a chair. You know, and my experience is that if one is sitting still, you know, with the back reasonably straight, uh, it's fine. Well. <laughs> if the mind's wandering a lot because it's too comfortable, some pain can be a great object. It can. I mean, it's, your mind doesn't wander a lot, you know, when there's, when there's strong pain or discomfort in the body. And it's kind of the analogous in, in a certain way to the clothes dryer. You know, something unpleasant that's, that's really pulling our attention it gives us a chance to see how is our mind relating to that. It's another, another little aphorism to keep in mind. If freedom is dependent on conditions, it's not freedom. Okay, so really, when we're talking about freedom of mind, awakening of mind, you know, the possibility 
of what the Buddha was pointing to, it was an openness of mind, a freedom of mind that was not dependent on conditions being a certain way. But for most of us, it's like we come to, you know, we have a, we have a, a zone in which we're okay, we can be accepting, we're comfortable with it, it's fine, we can really be with things. And then right at the edges of that zone, whether it's physical pain or emotion or whatever, whatever our particular edge is, that's an interesting place to work. You know, because right there we see, okay, is there attachment, is there pulling back? You know, do we tense? Can we learn to relax at that edge as well? And, and my imagination of the Buddha's mind is a mind without edges. You know, just, so just think of the fearlessness, the total fearlessness of what that kind of mind would be like. There's no edge. Anything is okay. So I just find it inspiring in a way to find myself at an edge. Not, not that it's always easy and not that it's always possible to stay right there. Sometimes we do need to pull back. But it can be really inspiring to find ourselves at the edge where it's not comfortable, you know, where it's not easy to be accepting of what's happening. But to think of it in terms of, okay, I'm practicing working towards the Buddha mind. <laughs> you know, I'm, okay, this is the edge, can I relax here? So it gets a little bigger. This is the edge, can I relax here? It gets a little bigger. But it's all, it's all doing it with that quality of interest and engagement, not forcing and not struggling, you know, really out of a willingness just to explore. And when it gets too much, you know, because it can get too much. So then we pull back, we come to a place of greater ease, greater comfort, you know, re-stabilize. That's part of the process as well. Okay, last question. Yeah, basically it's everything. Everything except what he referred to as Nibbana or the unconditioned. But everything in our experience, everything that's arising in our experience in the world is conditions, meaning that it arises out of causes. And everything is arising out of conditions. You know, it's, you know, you see cloud formations in the sky. That cloud comes together because certain conditions have come together. The conditions change, the cloud disappears. So that's a conditioned phenomenon. Well, everything in our mind and our body in the world is like that. Coming together out of conditions, changing when the conditions change, reforming. Uh, so it really is the whole, the whole world of experience. Okay, just, just a kind of little check here. Is, has the mic been on the whole time? No, that's just the timber of my voice. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.